Continuing in our reading of The Work of the Holy Spirit, a book originally written in 1840 by Octavius Winslow. We're in the chapter, The Spirit, the Author of Prayer, chapter 8. Brother Winslow writing of the impediments, the restrictions on the free course of prayer with God. Sometimes God says no. Do you not think that there is love and tenderness enough in the heart of Jesus to grant you what you desire, and ten thousand times more if he saw that it would promote your true holiness and happiness? Could he resist that request, that desire, that sigh, that tear, and that beseeching look, if infinite wisdom did not guide him in all his dealings with your soul? Oh, no! But he gives you an equivalent to the denied request. He gives you himself. Can he give you more? His grace sustains you. His arm supports you. His love soothes you. His spirit comforts you. And your chamber of solitude, though it may not be the scene of health and buoyancy and joyousness, may yet be the secret place where a covenant God and Father pours his grace into your soul and where Jesus meets you with the choicest unfoldings of his love. Could he not, would he not, heal you in a moment if it would be for your good? Then ask for a submissive spirit, a will swallowed up in God thy fathers. It may be that when the lesson of secret and filial submission has been learned, so that health is only desired as a means of glorifying God, he may put forth his healing power and grant you your request. But do not forget the Lord best knows what will most promote his own glory. You may have thought that health of body would better enable you to glorify him. He may think that the chamber of solitude and the bed of languishing are most productive of glory to his name. The patience, resignation, meek submission, and childlike acquiescence which his blessed spirit, through this means, works in your soul, may more glorify him than all the active graces that ever were brought into exercise. A believer may urge a request that is in itself wrong. The mother of Zebedee's children did so when she asked the Lord that her two sons might sit, the one on his right hand and the other on the left, in his kingdom, Matthew 20, verses 20 and 21. Who does not notice the self that appears in this petition? And although it was a mother's love that prompted it, and as such presents a beautiful and touching picture, yet it teaches us that a parent betrayed by his love for his child, may ask that of God which is really wrong in itself. He may ask worldly distinction, honor, influence, wealth for his child, which a godly parent should never do. And this may be a wrong request which God in his infinite wisdom and love withholds. Such was the petition of the mother, which our Lord saw fit to deny. Her views of the kingdom of Christ were those of earthly glory, to see her children sharing in that glory was her high ambition, which Jesus promptly but gently rebuked. Let a Christian mother ask for spiritual blessings for her children, and whatever else is needful, the Lord will grant. Let converting, sanctifying, and restraining grace be the constant petition presented at the footstool of mercy, and then the Christian mother cannot ask too much, or press her suit too frequently, or too fervently. To allude to another illustration of our remark, it was wrong of Job to ask the Lord that he might die. Oh, that I might have my request, are his words, and that God would grant me the thing that I long for, even that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off, Job 6, 8, and 9. It was an unwise and sinful petition which the Lord in great mercy and wisdom denied Job. Truly, we know not what we should pray for as we ought. What a mercy that there is one who knows. A child of God may ask for a wise and good thing in a wrong way. There may be no faith in asking. There may be a wrong attitude of mind. No sense of God's freeness in bestowing. No filial approach. No going as a child, as one pardoned and accepted in the Beloved. As one dear to the heart of God. There may be no honoring of the Father in Himself, no honoring of Him in the Son, no honoring of the Blessed Spirit. There may be no resting upon the cross, no pleading of the atoning blood, no washing in the fountain, no humble, grateful recognition of the new and living way of access. There may be a lack of humility in your mind, of brokenness in your spirit, of sincerity in your heart of reverence in your manner, and of sobriety in your words. There may be no confession of sin, 
no acknowledgement of past mercies, and no faith in the promised blessing. Oh, how much there may be in the prayer of a dear child of God that operates as a blight upon his request, that seems to close the ear and the heart of God. But oh, to go to him with filial confidence, with sweet faith, with love flowing from a broken heart, to go to him as the people of his choice, dear to him as the apple of his eye, as those who are viewed each moment in his Son, who would, for the love he bears us, undeify himself, if that would be for our real good and his own glory. Did he not once empty himself of his glory? Did he not become poor? Did he not humble himself? Did he not take upon him human nature, all for the love he bore his people? That was approaching so near in appearance, the cessation of deity, that as we gaze upon the spectacle, we wonder what another step might have produced. We might well think that he could not have gone further without ceasing to be God. Behold the broad basis, then, upon which a child of God may approach him in prayer. His love, oh, how immense it is past finding out. And yet again, a believer may present a right petition in a right way, and yet he may not wait for the Lord to answer in his own time. The believer may appoint a time, and if the Lord does not answer within that period, he turns away, resigning all expectation of an answer. There is such a thing as waiting for the Lord. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Lamentations 3.26 And the apostle alludes to and enjoins the same holy patience when he speaks to the Ephesians of praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance. Ephesians 6.18 A believer may present his request, may have some degree of nearness in urging it, may press it with fervency, and yet forgetting the hoping quiet, waiting patience, which ought invariably to mark a praying soul, he may lose the blessing he has sought. There is such a thing as waiting upon the Lord. Oh, how long have we made him wait for us? For years, it may be, we kept him knocking and standing and waiting at the door of our hearts until his own spirit took the work in his own hands and unlocked the heart, and the Savior entered. The Lord would now often have us wait His time in answering prayer. And if the vision tarry, let us still wait, hope, and expect. Let the delay stimulate hope and increase desire, and exercise faith and multiply petitions at the mercy seat. The answer will come when the Lord sees best. Lastly, a believer may lose the answer to his prayer by dictating to the Lord the mode as well as the time of answering. We may prescribe the way the Lord should answer, but he may send the blessing to us through an opposite channel, in a way we never thought of and should never have selected. Sovereignty sits ruling upon the throne, and in no aspect is its exercise more manifestly seen than selecting the way and the means by which the prayers of the saints of God are answered. Do not dictate to the Lord. If you ask a blessing through a certain channel or in a prescribed way, let it be with the deepest humility of mind and with a perfect submission to the will of God. Be satisfied to receive the blessing in any way which a good and covenant God may appoint. Be assured that it will be in the way that will most glorify God himself and secure to you the greatest amount of blessing. Many and endearing are the characters or offices ascribed to the Spirit in the Word, but none are found more sweet or appropriate by a child of God than that which he fills as the intercessor for his saints. We have already remarked that all true prayer is put into words by the Spirit. He is the author of prayer in your soul. A brief reference to the divine testimony will clearly substantiate this. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8, 26, 27. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father, Ephesians 2.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication 
in the Spirit, Ephesians 6.18. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, Jude 20. And our dear Lord encouraged his disciples in view of their approaching persecutions with the same truth, It is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you, Matthew chapter 10, verse 20. The consideration of two or three points will sufficiently unfold his work as the author of prayer in the believer first. It is the Spirit who leads the soul to an acquaintance with its wants. Such is the fallen condition of the soul, and such is its poverty, ignorance, and infirmity that it does not know its real weakness and deep necessity until taught it by the Holy Ghost. This is even so after conversion. A dear child of God, and it is awfully true, without any qualification of an unrenewed man, may fall into the state of the Laodicean church, to whom it was said, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Revelation 3.17 A believer may not know his real condition, his absolute need, There may be a secret declension in his soul, the enfeebling and decay of some spiritual grace, the slow but effective inroad of some spiritual enemy, the cherishing like Achan of some forbidden thing, the feeding of some worm at the root of his holiness, and all the while he may remain ignorant of the solemn fact, and how is he to know it until someone teach him? And who is that teacher but the Spirit? As he first convicts of sin, so in each successive stage of the believer's experience, he convicts of the daily need, the spiritual necessity, the growing infirmity, the increasing power of sin, and the deepening poverty. Do not overlook this important part of his work. To go to the throne of grace, we must have something to go for some errand to take us there, some sin to confess, some guilt to mourn over, some want to supply, some infirmity to make known, and, we must not leave this out, some blessing to acknowledge. How is all this to be brought about but by the blessed Spirit? Oh, what an unspeakable mercy to have one who knows us altogether and who can make us acquainted with ourselves. It is a far advanced step in grace when we know our real, undisguised condition. A man may lose a grace and may travel far and not be aware of his loss. The world has come in and filled up the space of that grace. Some carnal joy or pursuit has occupied the mind, engrossed the affections and the thoughts, and the soul has not been conscious of the loss it has sustained. Thus have many lost the sense of adoption, pardon, and acceptance. The graces of faith, love, and humility have been enfeebled until the description of Ephraim may truly and painfully apply to them. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. Hosea 7, 8, and 9. But the blessed Spirit at length reveals to the soul its loss, convinces it of its departure, makes known its real condition, and in this way leads it to the throne of grace. Cherish high views of the work of the Spirit, to have one near at hand indeed in you as he is in you, to detect so faithfully and lovingly as he does the waning, weakening grace, the feeble pulse, the spiritual decay, to awaken the conscience, arouse godly sorrow, and draw out your heart in confession, is to possess one of the most valuable blessings." Honor the blessed Spirit, praise Him for that work, extol His faithfulness and love, and treat Him as your tenderest, dearest friend. The Spirit of God stirs up the slumbering spirit of prayer. This is either perpetually declining or exposed to declension in the believer, and it needs as perpetual a supply of grace from the author of prayer to keep it in vigor as to restore it when it has declined. And I, Zechariah 12.10, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. 
He teaches the believer to plead the atoning blood of Christ. The Holy Ghost puts this great and prevailing argument in his mouth, and when sin seems a mountain, and unbelief would suppress the aspiration, and a deep consciousness of unworthiness would cause the soul to stand afar off, he shows, he opens to his view this precious, encouraging truth, the prevalency of the blood of Jesus with God on behalf of his people. In a moment the mountain is leveled, unbelief is checked, and the soul unfettered and unrestrained draws near to God, yea, rushes into the bosom of its Father. What a view does this give us of the love of the Spirit as the author of prayer? Who has not experienced it? Who is not a stranger to the blessed exercise of communion with God? How often has guilt caused the head to hang down, and a sense of utter vileness and worthlessness covered your soul with shame? Even the sense of destitution has kept back, we believers, just as the poverty, the wretched covering, and the loathsomeness of the poor beggar would keep him from our doors. Then does the blessed Spirit, in the plentitude of His grace and tenderness, unfold Jesus to our soul as being all that we want to give it full, free, and near access to God. He removes the eye from self and fixes and fastens it upon the blood that pleads louder for mercy than all his sins can plead for condemnation. The Spirit of God brings to the righteousness near, which so clothes and covers our soul as to fitted to appear in the presence of the King of Kings, not merely with acceptance, but with delight. Beholding him thus washed and clothed, God rests in his love and rejoices over him with singing. Nor must we overlook the understanding which exists between God the Father and the Spirit. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. There is a perfect agreement or understanding between the Father and the interceding Spirit. First, the Father, the searcher of hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit. He understands the desire and the meaning of the Spirit in the souls of the saints. He understands the groanings which cannot be uttered. He can interpret their sighs. He can read the meaning of their very desires. And when feeling has been too deep for utterance, and the thought too intense to express, and the soul could but groan out its wants and desires, then has God understood the mind of the Spirit. Oh, the inconceivable preciousness! of a throne of grace, to have a God to go to who knows the mind of the Spirit, a God who can interpret the groan and read the language of desire, to have promise upon promise inviting the soul to draw near. How precious this is! When from the fullness of the heart the mouth has been dumb, and from the poverty of language thought could not be expressed, then God, who searches the hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit, has said, Never before did you, my child, pray to me as you did then. Never before was your voice so sweet, so powerful, so persuasive. Never before were you so eloquent as when my Spirit made intercession for you with groanings which you could not utter. It was perhaps your last resource. Refuge failed you. No man cared for your soul. Friends failed you. Feelings failed you. All forsook you and fled. And in your extremity you went to God. And He did not fail you. You found the throne of grace accessible. You saw a God of grace upon it. And the sweet incense of the Redeemer's precious merits going up. And you drew near, sighing and groaning and breathing out your wants and said, It is good for me to draw near to God. Yes, He knows the mind of the Spirit. The secret desire for Jesus, the longing for divine conformity, the hidden mourning over the existence and power of indwelling sin the feeblest rising of the heart to God, the first sign of the humble and contrite spirit, all are known to God. He searcheth the heart, and he knoweth the mind of the spirit. Oh, let this encourage you when you feel you cannot pray by reason of the weakness of the flesh or the depth of your feeling. If the spirit is interceding in you, your heavenly Father knows the mind of the spirit, and not a sigh or a groan can escape his notice.
There is yet another vital principle connected with the perfect agreement of the Father and the Spirit in this important matter of prayer. It is that the Spirit maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Whatever the Spirit may say, the believer can be assured that it is according to God's will. The worldly desires which sometimes take possession of a child of God must not be included in this. He may sometimes be left to ask God for worldly distinction, influence, and wealth, and for places of temporal power and aggrandizement, as the mother of Zebedee's children did. But who will dare assert that in presenting such petitions he is asking for those things which are according to the will of God? No believer, if he is in a truly spiritual frame, thirsting for God, crucifying the world, and living as a stranger and pilgrim here, can go to the throne of grace and plead for these. It would be a carnal petition for carnal things, and there must be a dearth of spirituality in the soul that can urge it. But in spiritual things, how vastly different is it when we draw near to God and ask for more love, ask for more zeal, ask for an increase in faith, ask for a reviving of God's work within us, ask for more resemblance to Christ, the subjection of some enemy, the mortification of some evil, ask for the subduing of some iniquity, the pardon of some guilt, ask for more of the spirit of adoption, the sprinkling of the atoning blood, the sweet sense of acceptance, we know and are assured that we ask for those things which are according to the will of God, and which it is in the heart of God fully and freely to give. There need be no backwardness here. There need be no restraint here. There may be no misgiving here. When the believer is pleading for such blessings and spreading out such ones before the Lord, he may with boldness enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. He may draw near to God, not standing afar off, but in the spirit of a child drawing near to God. He may come with large requests, large desires, hopeful expectations. He may open his mouth wide because he asks those things which it is glorifying to God to give, which glorify God when given, and which we know from his own precious word it is according to his blessed will to bestow. Oh, the unspeakable encouragement of going to God with a request which we feel assured it is in his heart and according to his will freely to grant. Do not forget that it is the throne of grace to which you come in prayer. It is a throne because God is a sovereign. He will ever have the suppliant recognize this perfection of his nature. He hears and answers as a sovereign. He hears whom he will and answers what and when he will. There must be no dictation to God, no refusing to bow to His sovereignty, no rebelling against His will. If the answer be delayed, or God should seem to withhold the answer altogether, remember that He giveth no account of any of His matters, and that He has a right to answer or not to answer, as seems good in His sight. Glorious perfection of God, shining from the mercy seat, our Sovereign. But it is also a throne of grace. And why? Because a God of grace sits upon it, and the scepter of grace is held out from it, and all the favors bestowed there are the blessings of grace. God has many thrones. There is the throne of creation, and the throne of providence, and the throne of justice, and the throne of redemption. But this is the throne of grace. Just the throne we want. We are the poor, the needy, the helpless, the vile, the sinful, the unworthy. We have nothing to bring but our deep wretchedness and poverty, nothing but our complaints, our miseries, our crosses, our groanings, our sighs and tears. But it is the throne of grace. For just such is it erected. It is set up in a world of woe, in the midst of the wilderness, in the very land of the enemy, in the veil of tears. It is a God of grace who sits upon it, and all the blessings he dispenses from it are the gifts of grace, pardon, justification, adoption, peace, comfort, light, direction, all, all is of grace. 
No worth or worthiness in the creature extracts these blessings. No price he may bring purchases them. No tears or complainings or misery move the heart of God to compassion. All is of grace. God is so full of compassion and love and mercy, he does not need to be moved to pour it forth. It gushes from his heart as from a full and overflowing fountain and flows into the bosom of the poor, the lowly, the humble, and the contrite, enriching, comforting, and sanctifying their souls. Therefore, whatever your case, you may come. If it is a throne of grace, as indeed it is, then why not come? Why stand a long way off? If the poor, the penniless, the disconsolate, and the guilty are welcome here, if this throne is crowded by such, why make yourself an exception? Why not come too? What is your case? What is your sorrow? What is your burden? Ah, perhaps you can disclose it to no earthly ear. You can tell it to God only. Then take it to Him. Let me tell you for your encouragement that God has his secret audience chamber where he will meet you alone and where no eye shall see you and no ear shall hear you but his, where you may open all your heart and reveal your real condition and pour all your secrets into his ear. Precious encouragement. It comes from those lips into which grace was poured. Thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet... And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Then, armed with this promise, go to the throne of grace. Whether the want is temporal or spiritual, take it there. God loves your secrets. He delights in your confidence and will honor the soul that thus honors him. Remember, the throne of grace is near at hand. You have not to travel far to reach it. There is no lengthy and painful journey, no wearisome and mortifying pilgrimage. It is near at hand, lying down or rising up, going out or coming in, in the streets or in the house, in public or in private, in the chamber or in the sanctuary. God is everywhere, and where He is, there is a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. In a moment, in the greatest emergency, you may lift up your heart to the Lord, and in a moment your cry shall be heard, and your request shall be granted. And it shall come to pass that before they call, Isaiah 65:24, before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 34, verses 15, 17, and 18. Remember that at the throne of grace, it is everywhere. On the land and on the sea, at home or abroad, in the publicity of business or in the privacy of retirement, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. Wherever a believer goes, he carries about with him the intercession of the Spirit below, and he has the consolation of knowing that he has the intercession of Jesus above. Do not stay away from the throne of grace because of an unfavorable state of mind. If God is ready to receive you just as you are, no questions asked, no examination instituted, no exceptions made on account of the boldness or badness of your state, then count it a great blessing to be able to go to God even when you feel at your worst. To keep away from the throne of grace because of unfitness and unpreparedness to approach it is to alter its character from a throne of grace to a throne of merit. If the Lord's ears are only open to the cry of the righteous when they seek him in a certain good and acceptable state of mind, then he hears them because of their state of mind and not because he is a God of grace. But he can never alter his character or change the foundation of his throne. It is the mercy seat, the throne of grace, and not for any attitude, either good or bad, in the suppliant does he bow his ear, but for his own mercy's sake. Do not yield, then, to this device of your adversary to keep you from prayer. It is the privilege of a poor soul to go to Jesus at his worst to go in darkness, to go in weak faith, to go when everything says stay away, to go in the face of opposition, to 
hope against hope, to go in the consciousness of having walked at a distance, to press through the crowd to the throne of grace, to take the hard, the cold, the reluctant heart, and lay it before the Lord. Oh, what a triumph this is of the power and the grace of the blessed Spirit in a poor believer. What is your state? Are you weak in prayer? Are you tried in prayer? And yet, is there anything at all of real need, of real desire in your heart? Is this so? Then draw near to God. Your state of mind will not be more favorable tomorrow than it is today. You will not be more acceptable or welcome at any future period than you are at this moment. Give yourself to prayer. Supposing your state is the worst that can be, your frame of mind the most unfavorable, your cross the heaviest, your corruption the strongest, your heart the hardest, still go to the throne of grace, and opening your case to the Lord with groanings that cannot be uttered, you shall adopt the song of David, who could say in the worst state and in most pressing times, But I give myself unto prayer. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him, and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. Psalm 34, 3-6 The throne of grace is for the needy. It is always a time of need with a child of God. Without me, says Jesus, ye can do nothing. There is not a moment when, if he knows his real condition, he's not in need of something. What a blessing, then, is the throne of grace. It is for the needy. It is for those who are in want, those to whom all other doors are closed, with whom all other resources have failed, who have nowhere else to look, nowhere else to fly. To such is the throne of grace always open. Is it a time of trial with you? Then it is a time of need. Take your trial, whatever it be, simply to God. Do not brood over it. This will not make it sweeter or more easy to be born. But taking it to Jesus will. The very act of taking it will lighten it, and casting it upon His tenderness and sympathy will make it sweet. Is it a time of spiritual darkness with you? then it is a time of need. Take your darkness to the throne of grace, and in His light who sits upon it, you shall see light. Is it a time of adverse providences? Then it is a time of need. And where can you go for guidance, for direction, for counsel, and for light upon the intricacies of the way, but to the God of grace? Is it a time of temporal distress with you? Then it is a time of need. Take your temporal cares and necessities to the Lord, for He who is the God of grace is also the God of providence. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thank the Lord for every errand that takes you to the throne of grace, whatever that be which sends you to prayer. Count it one of your choice blessings. It may be a heavy cross a painful trial, a pressing need. It may be a disappointment, a cold look, an unkind expression. Yet, if it leads you to prayer, regard it as a mercy sent from God to your soul. Thank God for an errand to Him. It may be that you have not felt like praying for yourself. You've not been conscious of any special sense of being drawn to the throne for your own soul, but you have gone on behalf of another the burden, the trial, the affliction, or the immediate want of some member of God's family has pressed upon you, and you've taken his case to the Lord. You've borne him in your arms to the throne of grace, and while interceding for your brother, the Lord has met you and blessed your own soul. Perhaps you've gone and prayed for the church, for the peace of Jerusalem, for the prosperity of Zion, that the Lord would build up her waste places, and make her a joy and a praise in the whole earth. Perhaps it has been to pray for your minister, that the Lord would teach him more deeply and experimentally, and anoint him more fully with the rich anointing and unction of the Holy Ghost. Perhaps it has been to pray for Christian missions, and for hard-working and self-denying missionaries, that the Lord would make them eminently successful in spreading the knowledge of a precious Savior, and in calling in His people. And thus, 
while you have been besieging the throne of grace for others and pouring out your heart before the Lord, the Lord himself has drawn near to your own soul, and you have been made to experience the blessing that ever goes with and rewards intercessory prayer. Then let every event, every circumstance, every providence be a voice urging you to prayer. If you have no wants, others have. Take them to the Lord. If you are borne down by no cross, smitten by no affliction, or suffering from no need, others are. Go and plead for them with your heavenly Father, and the petitions you send up to the mercy seat on their behalf may return into your own soul, laden with rich covenant blessings. Turn everything anew in occasion for prayer, whether it's a dark providence or a bright one. Let it take you to God. Make the falls, the weakness, and the declensions of others grounds for prayer. Thus and thus only can you expect to grow in grace, and grace to grow in you. Above all, cultivate the habit of secret prayer. No other prayer can take its place. There are confessions that can be made, desires that can be expressed, sins that can be lamented, and wants that can be disclosed only in the secret place shut in with God. He that confines himself to the altar of the sanctuary, the family, or the social circle will find leanness come into his soul. It must necessarily be, the very nature of the case proves it, that there are states of mind which you can unfold to none but God, sins that can only be acknowledged in his presence, and wants that can only be poured out into his ear. What a loser, then, is that professing Christian who lives in the daily and habitual neglect of secret prayer. It is the close and secret walk with God that marks the true and advancing believer. It is in that walk and that only that fresh grace, strength, and love are poured into the soul. It is in secret communion with God that the believer becomes girded for the conflict, strengthened for the hour of trial, and prepared for the joys of heaven. Let it be remembered that one essential and important part of the Spirit's work as the author of prayer is to unfold Jesus as the medium of prayer. There is no access to God but through Jesus. There is no honoring of Christ in His person, blood, righteousness, and intercession in prayer. We can expect no answer to prayer if there is no such honoring. The great encouragement to draw near to God is Jesus at the right hand of God. Jesus is the door. Coming through Him, the poorest, the vilest, and the most abject may approach the throne of grace and ask what He will. The glorious advocate is on the throne to present the petition and urge its acceptance and plead for its answer on the basis of his own infinite and atoning merits. Come then, you who are poor, come, you who are disconsolate, come, ye who are tried and afflicted, come, ye who are wounded, come, you who are needy, come and be made welcome at the mercy seat, for Jesus waits to present your petition and plead your cause. Ask nothing in your own name, but ask everything in the name of Jesus. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. The Father may reject you, but his Son he cannot reject. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, Hebrews 10, 19-22. Draw near then, seeking soul, with boldness, not the boldness of a presumptuous, self-righteous man, but that of one chosen, called, pardoned, and justified. Draw near with the lowly boldness of a child, with the humble confidence of a son. You are dear to your father. Your voice is sweet to him. You are precious to Him because you have been accepted in His Beloved. You cannot come too boldly. You cannot come too frequently. You cannot come with too large requests. You are coming to a King. That King is your Father. That Father sees you in His Beloved Son. Do not hang back. Do not stand afar off. He now holds out the golden scepter and says, Come near. What is your request? 
Come with your temporal want. Come with your spiritual need. Ask what you will. It shall be granted you. I have an open hand and a large heart. Is this your desire? Lord, I want more grace to glorify thee. I want more simplicity of mind, singleness of eye. I want a more holy, upright, honest walk. I want more meekness, patience, lowliness, submission. I want to know more of Jesus, to see more of His glory, to feel more of His preciousness, and to live more simply upon His fullness. I want more of the sanctifying, sealing, witnessing, and anointing influences of the Spirit. Blessed, holy desires. It is the Spirit making intercession in you according to the will of God. And as you enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, the Lord will fulfill the desires of your heart. Watch diligently against the least declension in the spirit of prayer. If there be declension of falling away here, there will also be declension in every part and department of the work of the Spirit in your soul. It is prayer that keeps every grace of the Spirit in active, holy, and healthy exercise. It is the stream, so to speak, that supplies refreshing vigor and nourishment to all the plants of grace. It is true that the fountainhead of all spiritual life and grace to help in time of need is Christ himself, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And Paul's encouragement to the Philippians was, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. But the channel through which all grace comes is prayer, ardent, wrestling, importunate, believing prayer. Allow this channel to be dry, permit any object to narrow or close it up, and the effect will be a withering and a decay of the life of God in your soul. Every plant will droop, every flower will fade and lose its fragrance, and the state of your soul will no longer resemble that of the church thus so beautifully described in the Song of Solomon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden, and eat his pleasant fruits. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. This is the true and living picture of a believing soul in which the spirit of prayer is flourishing and vigorous. Reverse this, and how melancholy would it appear. And yet that would be the exact state of every prayerless professing Christian. Guard, then, against the slightest decline of prayer in your soul. If prayer, family prayer, social prayer, most of all, secret prayer is declining with you, no further evidence is needed of your being in a backsliding state of mind. There may not yet have been the outward departure, but you are on the way to it, and nothing but a return to prayer will save you. Oh, what alarm, what fearfulness and trembling should this thought produce in a child of God. I am on my way to an awful departure from God. Such is the state of my soul at this moment, such my present state of mind, such the loss of my spirituality, such the hold which the world has upon my affections. There is no length in sin to which I may not now go. There is no iniquity which I may not now commit. The breakers are full in view, and my poor weak ship is heading for and rapidly nearing them. What can shield you from the commission of that sin? What can keep you from wounding Jesus afresh? What can preserve you from foundering and making shipwreck of your faith? But an immediate and fervent return to prayer? Prayer is your only safety. Prayer for grace to help in your time of need. Prayer for reviving grace, for quickening, restraining, sanctifying grace. Prayer to be kept from falling, to be held up in the slippery paths. Prayer for the lowly mind, for the contrite spirit, for the broken heart, for the careful, close, and humble walk with the Lord. 
do you ask what are some of the symptoms of a decline of the spirit of prayer? We reply that the decay of any one grace of the spirit in the soul, faith, love, zeal, patience, meekness, temperance, lowliness, any decay of any one of those graces marks the low and feeble pulse of prayer in a believer. There may not be a decay of all the graces at once, and because of this, you, believer, may be greatly deceived. Outward zeal may continue long after other more hidden and spiritual graces have withered. And because this remains, the soul is deceived as to its real state before God. A secret and a fearful process of spiritual declension may be going forward in your soul, while for a time there be nothing outward to mark it. There are many evidences known only to you yourself by which the declining spirit of prayer may be detected. A distaste for the Word of God, for a spiritual and searching preaching ministry, for fellowship with spiritually minded brethren, for holy thought and meditation, all and many more which cannot be unknown to the backslider indicate a neglected throne of grace. Are you a prayerless, professing Christian? Oh, what is all your profession worth if you are a prayerless soul? What is your zeal, your church membership, your talking well and loud, your gifts, your reputation as a live Christian while you are dead to the true spirit and life of prayer, living in awful neglect of family prayer, social prayer, and secret prayer? All your profession of godliness, your outward zeal, your splendid gifts, all is but a fair show in the flesh, an empty name while you live in neglect of prayer. Prayer is the breathing of the life of God in the soul. Prayer is the breathing of the life of God in the soul. It is the pulse of the renewed man. Prayer is the turning of the soul to God. Where this is missing, the great evidence of the actual existence of life is missing too. This may catch the ear of someone who has never yet truly prayed, who all your life so far has neglected the throne of grace. What an awful condition! What a sad sight! Your life, listener, has been a prayerless life. It has been a life devoted to self, to sin, devoted to rebellion against God, to impenitence and unbelief, to hardness of heart, a life devoted to contempt of God's Word, to a neglect of the great salvation, to a despising of Christ, to a pursuit of happiness in a poor, dying, present evil world. Not a breath of prayer has ever risen from your soul to God. Not one pulse of love has ever beaten in your breast for Jesus. You have lived as a lover of self, a lover of the world, a lover of sin, a lover of wealth, of pleasure, and ambition, rather than a lover of God. And why are you at this moment out of hell? You have long been preparing for it. Your character for years has been molding for the society and the sufferings of the lost. Why are you not in hell now calling for a drop of water to cool that parched tongue which never once called in earnest supplication upon God? It is of the Lord's mercies that you are not consumed. And because His long-suffering patience has borne with you so long, you are yet within the region of hope. What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise and call upon God. The wrath of God is here, and its fearful outpouring hereafter, resting upon the soul that does not come to the throne of grace. The hell of an unpraying man is a fearful hell. To go from the means of grace, from the ordinances of religion, from a preached gospel, from a praying family to the judgment seat, an unpraying, unrepenting, unbelieving soul is to go to a special hell. The untaught, unenlightened, and unwarned heathen does not go to the hell of that soul that dies surrounded by the means of saving grace, rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, a stranger to prayer. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who has heard of the throne of grace only to slight it, 
of Jesus only to despise him, of the gospel only to reject it, of God's love, long-suffering, and grace only to trample them under his feet, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for that soul. Those mine enemies that would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power? Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20:11. This will be the doom and the portion of an unpraying soul. Remember that without prayer in your family, your family is cursed. Without prayer in your business, your business is cursed. Without prayer in your own soul, the curse of God rests upon you. If you have not time for prayer, then seek time Find time. Make time. You must pray or be lost. You must pray or be eternally condemned. You must pray or sink down overwhelmed with the wrath of God forever and forever. Seek time. Find time. Make time for prayer. Abstract it from business. Take it from pleasure. Steal it from sleep. You must pray or go to an awful, special hell. A sorer punishment than all others will be yours if you die a prayerless soul. Are you conscious of the slightest movement of your heart towards God? Cherish it as your most valuable mercy. It is the first gentle breathing of the blessed Spirit in your soul. It is the first pulse of spiritual life. It may be feeble. It may be only a desire, a misgiving, a solemn thought, a feeling after God, a cry, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, it is the life-giving Spirit overshadowing you. Let it lead you to the mercy seat. O oh, precious longing after God, O oh, blessed and gentle drawing of the Spirit, let it lead you at once to the throne of grace. Go there and spread your case before the Lord. Confess your sins. Acknowledge your iniquity. Humble yourself at His feet. And for Jesus' sake, God will receive you graciously, pardon you freely, and seal you as His child. Lastly, pray expectantly, diligently and perseveringly. Expect an answer to your prayer, a promise to your request, a compliance with your suit. Be as much assured that God will answer as that you have asked or that He has promised. Ask in faith, only believe. Watch daily at the gates for the answer. Look for it at any moment and through any providence. Do not expect it in your own way, but in the Lord's way. Do not be astonished if God should answer your prayer in the very opposite way that you had anticipated it, and it may be dictated it. With this view, watch every providence, even the smallest. You do not know when the answer may come, at what time, or in what way. Therefore, watch. The Lord may answer in a great and strong wind, in an earthquake, in a fire, or in a still, small voice. Therefore, watch every providence to know which will be the voice of God to you. Do not pray as if you asked for or expected a refusal. God delights in your holy fervency, your humble boldness, and your persevering importunity. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Pray submissively, expect hopefully, watch vigilantly, and wait patiently. Behold, then, the throne of grace. Was ever spot so verdant and so sunny? Was ever resting place so sacred and so sweet? Could God himself invest it with a richer or greater attraction? Behold it yet again. It is the throne of grace. There are dispensed all the blessings of sovereign grace. 
pardon, justification, adoption, sanctification, and all that connects the present state of the believer with eternal glory, there is dispensed grace itself, grace to guide, grace to support, to comfort, and to help in time of need. There sits the God of grace, proclaiming himself the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. There is extended the scepter of grace, welcoming the sons and daughters of need, the weary and the heavy laden, the guilty, the broken in heart, the poor, the friendless, the bereaved. There stands Jesus, our high priest and mediator, full of grace and truth, waving to and fro his golden censer, from which pours forth the fragrant incense of his atoning merits, wreathing in one offering as it ascends the name, the wants and the prayer of you, O lowly worshiper. And there, too, is the Spirit of grace breathing in your soul, making known the need, putting the petition into words, the Spirit making intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Behold, then, the throne of grace, and draw near. You are welcome. Come with your cross. Come with your infirmity. Come with your guilt. Come with your need. Come with your wounded spirit. Come with your broken heart. Come and welcome to the throne of grace. Come without price. Come without worthiness. Come without preparation. Come without fitness. Come in a bad state of mind. Come with a hard heart. Come and welcome to the throne of grace. God, your Father, makes you welcome. Jesus, your Advocate, makes you welcome. The Spirit, the author of your prayer, makes you welcome. All the happy and the blessed who cluster around it make you welcome. The spirits of just men made perfect in glory make you welcome. The ministering spirit sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Angels make you welcome. All the holy below and all the holy ones above, all, all make you, poor trembling soul, welcome, welcome, three times welcome to the throne of grace. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they 
To admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.